Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss Westminster's decision to raise national insurance contributions and what it means for investors and the UK economy. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, Stuart Robinson, Wealth Planner, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. And for this week's episode, I imagine all thoughts are with what's been going on in Westminster. And so I thought we'd bring together a panel of experts to help bring that to life and provide some explainers. So today we have Stuart Robinson. He specialises in tax and wealth planning for our clients. We also have Olivia Gleeson, who regular listeners will know is one of our chief political analysts. And finally, Will Hobbs, our CIO, who we forever try to keep focused on this century, but, but often fail at that. So hi, everyone. How are you all doing? Hi, good. Hi, Nikki. Hello, Nikki. Yeah, all good. Back from holiday. Oh, how many holidays? Come on. So, Will, you've had a holiday. Olivia, have you managed one? Joe was just saying he came down to London for his holiday, so I oh, thought was, which was perfect. novel. But yeah, I went the other direction. I went to Scotland to take the family argument to the rural areas. <laughs> it's nice and re- nice and refreshing, actually. Everyone fought in new surroundings, and it seemed to oh, <laughs> change is as good as the rest. Exactly. <laughs> and and Stuart, I, I hope it wasn't a holiday where you actually for once went into the office. Not at all. We we, we live in the countryside, so we thought it would, we'd drag the kids into the coronavirus hotspot and, and, and take them to London and, 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 and take advantage of the fact that there aren't too many crowds. Oh, amazing. And Olivia, did you manage to get away? I was just saying I snuck to the south of France, but to make you all feel better, I endured five hours of border control um, back in Heathrow. So I was probably pictured, pictured on the front of the Daily Mail, queuing and hot. Oh, gosh. Well, hopefully, I'm sure it was worth it for, for all of you. I'm in the sort of that, that position where I've got my holiday to look forward to. So a week in October, didn't manage to get away over the summer, but saving it up. So there we are. So, so look, uh, it's been a very busy week in Westminster, as we, as we mentioned. And clearly the announcement that we saw this week around paying for social care and the NHS and how that is being proposed to be done is, is something that, of course, affects all of us. So let's start, if we could, Stuart, with you. Obviously, I'm sure you have been talking to clients a lot, specifically around around the announcement that, that we heard. So what's the most important thing for, for people that they should think about or, or that you've been hearing from, from clients or prospects that they're worried about? I think for, for most of our clients, you know, the, the, the tax headline is something that they've been sort of talking about, the impact of those taxes. So whilst obviously the, the, the rise in national insurance contributions uh, you know, affects all of those who work, the, the rise in dividend tax is probably one that is concerning most of our clients. That's the one that probably impacts them the most. But I think, you know, from from our perspective, sort of one and a quarter percent rise in dividend tax. You know, we've been reminding them that it still only takes the basic rate of dividend tax to sort of eight and three quarter percent. So it still remains a very attractive rate of tax compared to say income tax, which starts at twenty. In that respect, of course, it it, it doesn't sound overly taxing, so to speak, but. <laughs> When it comes to to the fact that, as you say, that there is this increase and that's coming, how does that change the way you would think about how you advise people with respect to their wealth planning? 
I think, yeah, in terms of the of the tax rises, uh, I don't think it makes too much of an impact for us. You know, it's just a case of reinforcing the message that we've taken to clients for many years around the importance of structuring your wealth in a tax efficient manner. You know, for many, it's a reminder to go back to basics. You know, I guess the the tax free landscapes of pensions and ISAs will simply offer greater value, you know, next year than than they do today. And, you know, as I said, for investors, the basic rate of dividend tax is still really compelling. So we're still looking to help clients use those basic rate allowances because ultimately capital gains at 10%, dividend tax at sub 10% are still rates we think clients should be grabbing with both hands. It gets it gets a bit more interesting when we go beyond that basic rate of tax where we take more opportunity to diversify a client's tax structure. And, and we often hear investors like, like Will talk about the benefits of a diversified approach to investing, but we, we don't always hear about the importance of tax diversification. The fact, you know, the fact is that clients who have successfully you know, diversified their tax structures in the past for use of, say, offshore bonds won't see any impact at all to those investments as a result of this week's announcements, as they're not subject to dividend tax in the same way that they wouldn't be subject to a rising capital gains tax. And I think the point here is, Back in March, you know, probably on, on this very podcast, back in March, everyone was second guessing the budget and talking about a potential rise in capital gains tax that didn't happen. This rise in dividend tax perhaps kind of caught, caught a lot of people by surprise. And the reality is that we can't second guess future tax regimes. So you know, what we try and do is spread clients' wealth across multiple tax structures because it's simply a sensible way of hedging out that future taxation risk. Yeah, it makes sense. And and anything else that you think we should take note of? Well, I think from a wealth planning perspective, you know, for me, one of the biggest impacts of the announcement is is not the tax rises, oddly enough, but the prospect of that cap on care costs. You know, baby boomers are often dubbed the, the wealthiest generation. We know there's going to be a huge intergenerational transfer of wealth over the next 20 to 30 years, which, you know, if not planned carefully, could lead to some rather eye-watering inheritance tax bills. But a lot of people historically have been reluctant to commit to efficient wealth transfer because of a fear about their own future needs. Yet that, what about me? What if I need care question, which people rightly plan for that worst case scenario. So I think that if we get as a society to a place where people trust that the government will effectively pick up the care tab above the £86,000 limit, then I think we'll see far more interest from clients wanting to pass wealth on during their lifetimes, which will effectively free up capital that is currently just kept back as what is the ultimate rainy day fund. Got it. And I know, Will, you're you're obviously no doubt going to have interesting commenting on that, no doubt, especially the the diversification point. But before we go there, Olivia, interesting to, to get your thoughts around the politics that have been involved this week. It's certainly been an interesting show, but it is actually clearly quite a turnaround for a for a Conservative Prime Minister to to raise taxes. So how do you think government settled on on raising national insurance and the dividend tax? It was mooted previously that they might have actually looked at raising income tax. So how do you think we got to this place? Well, I mean, I guess I should follow on from the point about we should never second guess uh, future tax regimes. But obviously, you know, that speculation is what I'm employed for. So uh, I'll continue on uh, continue on that vein. But with, just for uh, fun. Just for fun, but no promises. You know, for starters, I'd point out that government could have considered no tax hikes at all and actually look to fix the social care issue 
with even more borrowing. But, you know, of course, I think that option was quickly uh, swept off the table in view of the sort of staggering debt, you know, post-pandemic. And we do know this Chancellor does want to balance the books at some point in the future. So, you know, clearly sound finance and cutting borrowing came first. But I think you're right, there has been a debate in government between the option for sort of a targeted tax increase that would have only impacted certain cohorts of society like the wealthy or a broader tax increase that would impact the workforce. And it really could have gone either way. I think there's a lot of opinion in favour of an income tax rise, which would have seen those with the sort of broader shoulders paying more rather than national insurance, which impacts sort of all those in work. But I think what it all comes down to is ultimately politics and the optics. Now, the optics of a Conservative government, as you alluded to, sort of raising income taxes are acutely difficult, not least with regard to the fact that traditionally their voter base has been wealthier and has been elderly. And, you know, don't forget that national insurance rise won't be paid for by that elderly cohort of society, which is another key voter segment. And, you know, by comparison, a hike to national insurance spreads the effect more thinly. So I think that's probably, you know, what compelled them to go down that route. And I think the other sort of interesting dynamic there to bear in mind, and maybe Will can opine on this later, is you know, a lot of the public doesn't view national insurance as a tax in the same way as income tax. You know, national insurance increases have always been slightly more popular than income tax rises due to this sort of legacy perception that national insurance directly pays for health spending. So overall, I think the government concluded that, you know, on balance, national insurance is probably going to be an easier pill to swallow uh, than income tax. And the social care levy itself, you know, how do you feel that's gone down? We know that, as you mentioned, Conservatives are typically staunch supporters of low taxes. You mentioned that perhaps the general public don't perceive national insurances as a tax as such. How do we reconcile this? Well, I think, you know, in anticipation of these tax changes, we did hear a lot of uh, noise about a potential uh, Tory rebellion. But all of you who followed the vote yesterday saw that, you know, this essentially dried up. So I think it's right to question sort of what's happened here. And I think the explanation has to be that there is just a general acceptance amongst Conservative MPs that taxes have to rise. And it's also not reasonable to hold the government to every line of a manifesto written before the pandemic. You know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's making a lot of his Uh, comment at the moment saying the pandemic was in nobody's manifesto. Now, I think it's important to say that doesn't mean Tory MPs are completely on board with the details of this tax hike. I think it's fair to say that some red wall MPs representing those working class constituencies do feel that national insurance, you know, isn't as fair on lower or middle income earners as perhaps a wealth tax that might have been. And of course, there are other MPs who are bemoaning the intellectual death of uh, traditional conservatism. But I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, just because the overwhelming majority of conservative MPs voted with the government last night, you know, doesn't mean they love the policy. But overall, I think, you know, as we stand today, the government's probably pretty pleased with how the news landed within its party. You know, there were weeks of speculation between multiple ministers, cabinet ministers opposing the decision, dozens of backbenchers voting against. And On the night, there was a general recognition amongst MPs that the government had taken a very tricky but necessary decision. I think one Tory uh, backbench MP put it better than I could. And they said, look, I think this tax rise is morally wrong, but I voted for it because the alternative of not acting is far, far worse. 
So I think that's where we are. The only thing I'd sort of add is, you know, the government have superseded the immediate danger with the vote and their backbenchers. But of course, Tory MPs will now begin to sort of pour over the details and scrutinise the policy further. So the government's in for a slightly bumpy ride still. And as you say, you know, that, that's how perhaps we saw the vote, because how Conservative MPs typically held their nose and, mm, and went mm. again because they felt that it was the lesser of two evils, perhaps. But how, how do you think the electorate might view this? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think the answer is, you know, really far from straightforward, especially at this point in time. Of course, you know, the newspapers and commentators were, you know, quite dramatic in their reporting over the last few days on the sort of real life impact on household budgets, the tens of millions of people these changes will have. And I think the catchphrase is it's the highest taxes people will pay in history or since the war uh, under this Conservative government. And that and that financial burden is unlikely to be received well by many. And, you know, what's more, as you sort of mentioned earlier, you know, these changes break the manifesto pledge that the government said only sort of two less than two years ago, I think, when they were voted in, that they wouldn't raise any of the major taxes. And if you look at the history of parties, not naming any names, who've broken sort of leading manifesto promises, they've been punished sorely by the electorate. But look, what I'll say is, I think the government have a very careful and considered strategy here, which they hope to pull off. For one, they're making these changes in a period without any white heat of an election campaign, which is helpful. And two, I think, you know, they're gambling on the fact that they might actually be forgiven by the electorate for this bold mood, as yes, they're raising taxes, but they're also simultaneously demonstrating that they are willing to try solve difficult problems that their predecessors couldn't pull off. And you know, the electric, electorate knows that the social care and NHS waiting list needs fixed. So asking them to pay a little bit more to get the results they want with those public services might well be deemed an acceptable trade-off. But, you know, nonetheless, I think the dust probably does still need to settle a bit before whether we can judge that the electorate can fully reconcile these tax changes. Polls are very up and down. I think there was a YouGov poll uh, last night saying the public just about supports national insurance rise, about 44%. But in truth, it's a little bit early to tell. And, you know, the policy is still quite abstract in the mind of a lot of voters and opinions might shift when the reality hits and hits their pockets a little bit more. So I think we'll probably need to keep an eye on reaction in the days and weeks ahead. So plenty, plenty to watch out for there. So thank, thanks for that, Olivia. And, and Will, turning to you, what, what are your thoughts here? Well, I was just going to, so I was just going back to Stuart's point right at the beginning and just, it's, it's quite a far-fetched idea, unusually for me. But, you know, I think, you know, part of that really is if you can persuade people, you know, as Stuart said, you know, to change their later life savings plans that they can have a little bit more trust than the safety net you know in a sense that could be at the helpful at the margin in terms of you know efficiency what you want to do generally in the economy is minimize the resources lying idle on the economic sidelines and that may help towards that now as olivia hinted at you know ideology is important in all of this however it may well be that with regards to the social safety net and how it evolves in the future, you know, reality simply tramples all over pre-existing ideas of where the state should and shouldn't operate. You know, the potential for, you know, we're always talking about it on this podcast, you know, the potential for further massive industrial change, widening inequality of opportunity and other things, an aging population combined with a crisis that has kind of forcibly rewritten the state playbook. It's clear it's not an easy time to be thinking about all this stuff. You know, however, the point here is that if properly designed, uh, communicated and implemented, big if, many aspects of your social safety net can actually semi-pay for themselves over the longer term by helping to make more of the human capital and other resources that your economy is, is blessed with. That, that's only one of the things to uh, to think about, of course. But I think it, it is, it's interesting. 
And any other impacts as you see them on on the economy? So does does this change the near-term outlook materially? You sort of said, well, there, there could be a scenario where that safety net perhaps creates a, let's call it a more robust longer-term outlook, but, but anything more near-term? Uh, I mean, nothing we would hang our hat on too confidently, I have to admit. I mean, uh, there have obviously been a load of studies on the ability of marginal tax rates, uh, the level of marginal tax rates, uh, to explain the prevailing growth trend. Uh, and to be honest, in all of these studies, there's no sort of clear, robust relationship. So, you know, just looking at the US as an example, and here I'm going to delve back into history a little bit, but this this is a little bit of a dirty example, but but hopefully it'll, it'll illustrate the point. You know, if you look at the period between 1870 and 1912, the US had no income tax and tax revenues were about 3% of GDP. Now, from 1913 to 1946, you obviously have a pretty tumultuous period with two world wars, a depression, multiple technological revolutions. Um, but you then go into a period really from 1947 onwards characterized by permanently higher taxes and government spending. So from 1947 through to 2000, the highest marginal tax rate, I think, averages close to 70 percent, about 66 percent. And federal revenues average around 18 percent, you know, close to 20 percent of GDP. Uh, in addition, you've got corporates and estate taxes were imposed at high marginal rates and uh, state level taxes rose significantly over earlier levels. Now, the point is, you, you have these vast differences between taxes and spending, you know, that whole bit before 1930, 13 and then after World War Two. However, this is the important point. Here is the point. Finally, the trend growth rate of the economy in these two incredibly different tax and spending paradigms is literally precisely the same. A little over 2% in terms of real GDP per capita per person inflation adjusted output growth, let's say. Now, like I say, this is a bit dirty, but there are there is plenty of evidence, statistical evidence that stacks up and is generalizable to the UK where trend growth has actually been similarly steady through you know a variety of tax regimes. So it's slightly counterintuitive. One always thinks that sort of big changes changes in size of state and stuff would have real big explanatory power with regards to how your economy performs. But that's not what the statistics tell us. Interesting. Okay. And so perhaps turning our attention somewhat across to, to continental Europe. So we've got an upcoming German election and it's seeming like there's quite a seismic change in, in voting intentions. What, what are you seeing there? Yes. I mean, well, obviously, a lot of the focus has been on the end of the remarkable Frau Merkel, Merkel as Chancellor. But the story here, I think, you know, that you're alluding to is, is of the incredible, you know, surging popularity of the Social Democrats in the last month. And I think the point for us would be a familiar one is really just keep an open mind. There are multiple coalition options, with most of them reasonably consistent with a measure of continuity, policy continuity. However, I think with Germany, just remember, e even subtle changes in how Germany perceives her role in Europe, Fiscal rectitude, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, will obviously be very important for us to for us to keep an eye on. So it, it is just one to keep an eye on. But I think that's is it twenty eighth, twenty ninth. It's towards the end of this month, anyway. Fabulous. Any final messages for our listeners, for investors? The usual ones, I think. I mean, our, our regular listeners should be able to say this for me without me without me saying it. I, I think be sure to be fully invested in a diversified batch of capital markets assets. Uh, Stuart's point on diversification of tax is, is incredibly important as well. Use your ISA allowance. No need to wait until the deadline. This really is an important resource for those looking to maximise their the long term power of their savings. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, all of the all, all very familiar points. Hopefully, brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much to. 
to Stuart, to Olivia and to you, Will. And thank you to our listeners and subscribers. Please keep letting us know if there are topics you'd like us to, to bring to you. And with that, I will wish you a great rest of your week. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.